With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody. This is Eric Cohn with IndieWire. And this episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by our friends at Vimeo. And there's a lot of really great movies on Vimeo On Demand right now. So before we get started, I want to single out one that I like quite a bit. It's called World of Tomorrow. And even though it's a short film, honestly, it packs more visual mastery and emotion into that running time than a lot of features that I see. It's directed by Don Hertzfeld, who's one of the best American animators ever. He has this incredible personal touch. He uses these stick figures to tell stories that are surprisingly profound. Uh, He does it all by hand. And you may have seen Don's earlier work, Rejected, was nominated for an Oscar a few years ago. If you haven't seen that one, I recommend that one as well. But World of Tomorrow is by far his finest achievement yet. It's it's profound and, and intimate and compelling in all these different kinds of ways, but at the same time, it's universally accessible. You don't have to know anything in particular going into it, and yet it will change your understanding of the world. That is not hyperbole, I promise you. It's essentially a science fiction story about a woman from the future warning her, her past self about the future that awaits her, but I'm not going to tell you anything else about it because you really should be surprised by this thing. And frankly, it's not even about what happens so much as the way it happens. This movie is, is beautiful from the colors to the, to the way that it moves forward. I just can't stop talking about it, and I'm sure you'll agree. But if you're not convinced yet, I have one more incentive for you, which is this. We have a promo code from Vimeo that will give you a 10% discount if you go rent this movie right now. And here it is. I hope you have a pen and paper ready because this is very important. The promo code is ERIC, that's my name, E-R-I-C, 10, E-R-I-C, 10. So if you go to Vimeo On Demand and you go to World of Tomorrow, you can actually get a 10% discount by using the promo code ERIC10. In fact, you don't even have to go to the website because... If you're on IndieWire, where you listen to this podcast, you could see it right there. It's in front of you. You can do it right now. So that's something to think about. And you can also go to Vimeo.com slash IndieWire and see a whole bunch of other stuff that's on Vimeo On Demand that I also really like. Things like Bill Plimpton's Cheatin', which is on my top 15 list of movies that have already opened so far this year and probably will stick around on that list by the end of it. And a whole bunch of other stuff that hopefully I'll get a chance to talk to you about more later. And I'd love to hear from you about what you think of these movies. But definitely start with World of Tomorrow. It's short. It won't take up too much of your time. Use that Eric 10 uh, promo code because it really, it's it's going to be something that you'll keep talking about, I promise you. And also, spend some time exploring Vimeo because, frankly, in the distribution arena, not a lot of people are doing what these guys are doing. I mean, they give 90% of their sales to filmmakers. It's really one of the best splits in the business when you think about it. And the fact that you can watch these movies on any kind of device, your smart TV, tablet, phone, using the Vimeo app, I mean... That's the way that we watch stuff now, and they're one of the few distributors who seem to be figuring that out. They're cracking the code, and with these great movies that are exclusively on there, like World of Tomorrow, 
I think you're in a good situation if you're using Vimeo to watch these things, to discover these things. So definitely check that stuff out. Let me know what you think about them. Use that promo code, and we'll be back with more Vimeo options next week. But for now, enjoy the show. Granddaddy used to press fake five-cent pieces from the oar in the side of the hill. If he'd ever realized what he had back then, I probably wouldn't be sitting right here. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the chief film critic and deputy editor, joined as always by Ann Thompson from Thompson and Hollywood. And, and a lot of the stuff that we discuss on this podcast has to do not only with the movies, but with the larger culture in which movies are made. And so sometimes we try to work around some of the bigger issues that get dissected elsewhere. But in other cases, something comes up where we just have to confront it head on. And the issue of sexism in Hollywood is one that absolutely uh, falls into that domain and came up this week in a way that we really have to start out with because it's just kind of unbelievable in a way. And that's the, the situation with Rose McGowan, who tweeted that essentially she was fired by her agent for not being interested in showing up on the set for this Adam Sandler movie that required certain sexist demands of her work. Well, what she did was to tweet tweet this, you know, she she shared this this the language of the casting call, which is absolutely standard issue. I mean, this is normal stuff where, you know, you have to wear a push-up bra and you have to wear tight clothes and and the way women are treated in Hollywood in in casting sessions, you know, every, every working actress knows this and they hate it, but they've never talked about it much because it it is something that they could seriously be punished for. And any woman who's, who, who, I remember listening to the women on this uh, panel at uh, Comic-Con, the kick-ass women, and they were all action uh, actors who, who were in, you know, Walking Dead and, and some of the TV shows and, and movies. And, and you know, um, the, the uh, Maslany, Tatiana Maslany was on there. And they were all sharing a, a little bit some of how difficult it is, someone uh, like Michelle Rodriguez, um, how difficult it is to complain or ever say anything negative or 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 you you don't want to be branded as difficult someone like Deborah Winger was was in her career was was loaded with that and Rose McGowan who we all know well is smart and sharp and and has had a, a, a very interesting career making a transition to being a director she's got a short that's available for viewing now um and it's really good, actually. It actually is. It I watched it. We posted it on the blog. It's on there if you want to look at it. I think you did it at NDWire as well. And and the thing is, you know, it's pretty mild. All she did was just to share the, this, you know, the, her, you know, this is the kind of thing we have to put up with. You know, you would think at her age at this point she would be above that and beyond that. And people wouldn't, you know, her, her agent wouldn't be... Her agent was just sharing it with her. This is what was required, right? So um, now the agent's been fired after after uh, after McGowan uh, basically went public with the whole thing. In a week when Taylor Swift can also make Apple change its policies to pay its artists during trial periods for its new streaming service, it's a good week for uh, yeah. social action in the entertainment industry. But what's also interesting, and I cannot help but note this, I mean, I happen to have seen Trainwreck last night, written by Amy Schumer, uh, unbel- you know, and God praise Judd Apatow, you know? The guy 
is married to a strong woman. He has daughters. He is enlightened. He's his film. You know, a lot of people want to cast him in this sort of. Um, you know, dumb male category. It's really not true. He's had strong women in all of his comedies. He's had, he's always been relatively on the side of the angels. Um, and in this case, uh, he not only encouraged Amy Schumer, you know, to write the screenplay and worked with her the way he worked with Lena Dunham on Girls. He also directed the movie really well and cast her in the lead uh, despite some quarters believing that she's not pretty enough to be a movie star, well, she's we perfectly sexy, man. She's great. I was expecting, you know, I, I didn't know what I, I, I was. I'd heard it played well at South by, you know, people liked it. Uh, I and I've seen some of her work on TV and on online and clips and so forth. And she's, you know, this is a really good movie, and it's got uh, all sorts of things that any woman will identify with, and not only any woman. Any guy who lives with a woman. There's a lot. There's a joke in there about finding a gross tampon in the in the toilet that the guys were laughing at too because they sure. know. It's I just, mean, you know, one of the things that I think is notable about this kind of reaction, though, is that it feels. I get the strange feeling of deja vu when it comes to the kind of revelatory experience of a movie that has more progressive scenarios and what the industry standards are. I mean, wasn't Bridesmaids a reason for this celebration as well? Yeah, but in that case, you still had, um, you know, Kristen Wiig and, 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 and McCarthy and all these people were breaking out because of it and Rose Byrne. I mean, it was just an incredible, incredible cast. Um, but but this, this one is even closer to being about, it, it's not some, that was like a dumb female comedy, right? Everybody, the joke's on the, on the women, too. The, this is more about, uh, you know, some of the issues that w- women really do have and people have. Have, not just women, but people with intimacy. And she's like a guy. She's like acting like a guy. And and she's actually coming to terms with what it It's a little bit, believe it or not, like shame. <laughs> like that Michael Fassbender movie where it's so difficult to be, you know, you, if you're a sex addict, it's so difficult to be um, actually close and intimate with someone who could actually kiss you on the lips and mean it, you know? Wow. So Shame, shame for the masses, as, as it It's were. kind of interesting. It's a, it's a pretty good way to sell it to a much smaller crowd than I'm sure a lot of people. I think this will be out. very mainstream. I think yeah. this will do very well. Play but it, a lot but it, I, I, it's a good point to bring up. Which and is it's a that, studio that's run by a woman, by the way, which is on a roll. Universal sure. is on an amazing roll. Everyone in the industry is talking about it. Everybody knows it. And Donna Langley is the one in charge. It's worth it's worth pointing out also that even though it's a movie directed by a man, I don't think. I mean, it's not necessarily. It has the voice a, of Amy Schumer, right? I think it, just there, as Girls has the voice of Dina Lena Dunham, whether she directs it or not, or writes right. it or not. It's it's more about this this whole idea of a feminine gaze was somehow ghettoized by the industry very early on when movies became part of American culture, even though. You know, a lot of silent films were written by women in the studio system, although a lot of them weren't credited. I mean, it, but back it, in the it, day, before there were big stakes, before there was big money involved, women were very important. They were editors, right. they so, were directors, they were writers, they were doing everything. It, it was only when the when the scale became uh, bigger and the scope, the stakes became bigger, that they were shut out. Absolutely, and yet still somehow woven into the DNA of what was going on. But what we're seeing is more and more 
there's at least an awareness that you can tell a story with a, a female character essentially mandating the narrative and it, it doesn't have to be you know uniformly special because of that it's just a good movie that takes care of that problem and what we're seeing as a result is that there are more people who are sort of willing to call Hollywood on its BS as it continues to grow up a little bit more. I think what's happened is that there's been a turning point. There's been a consciousness raising. Gina Davis is out there flogging, you know, uh, with her women in media. And all this stuff is going on. Um, and and the actors are speaking up. Meryl Streep's speaking up, you know, at every single women in film event. At every, you know, there's just more awareness and and the and, and there seems to be more of a sort of groundswell and what i'm also noticing uh is that there are more women getting hired all of a sudden you are seeing one announcement after another that you know producer denise denovi is now going to direct a movie uh one of the producers of hunger games is going to direct a movie you know marvel is actually talking to they didn't hire her but they had meetings with ava duvernay which know. i could totally see i mean it's not just a progressive maneuver when you watch selma it's not like that's an audition to make an action movie with people in tights at the same time there's some dynamic sequences it would be a natural transition for this director much in the way it could be for lots of other directors who might want to tackle a project like that I mean, it, it seems like it's in Congress with the need for a more progressive approach, that it's the right people getting the job. And that's smart business along with the right... Absolutely. Idea. And then, you know, Catherine Hardwick is, is doing a, a, a movie. You know, it's about time, announced, too. You know, Deborah Granick, the woman who was responsible for the Twilight franchise. So, so Deborah Granick has a movie opening in a week called Stray Dog, which has been in distribution limbo for a while, and it's a documentary and has not made a feature since Winter's Bone. So. In her, I, I'm, I'm, I think it's shocking and horrifying that Deborah Granick hasn't directed a movie. On the other hand, she's, if you know her and if you understand who she is, she has her own sense of what she wants to do and her own taste, and it's not commercial. And, and she's just going to have to take her own path in terms of, of finding fun, fun, financing for some of the stuff she wants to do is it right now that she should be getting that financing but it's difficult sure. when you're when your uh sensibilities don't necessarily mesh with what the financiers think is commercial that's the issue and i guess i guess so but of course i mean that a lot of filmmakers who work outside of whatever you consider mainstream still continue to find those resources so the the takeaway from that is that it's not just a hollywood problem it's an institutional problem for the entire global film industry. I couldn't talking. agree more. I couldn't agree more, especially when so many people like her are being forced to go to, uh, you know, foreign uh, sales entities to raise money. And those entities are ridiculously conservative about who is bankable and what country and they have these sort of ridiculously old-fashioned you know statistics to you know it takes them a long time for the break you know <laughs> yeah they're probably just figuring out that chris pratt is a movie star you know <laughs> it just takes them a long time to uh to figure these things out yeah well the rose mcgowan problem also points to another issue which has come up in the past in the blogosphere which is this a uh, series of movies that Adam Sandler is doing for Netflix. He, he signed, what was it, a three-picture deal, something like that, maybe four pictures, something ridiculous. Um, and the last time we heard about it, it was because 
a bunch of Native Americans walked off the set because they found aspects of the caricatures to be offensive. Now we have this situation where Rose McGowan speaking up about. I don't think we can blame stuff. Adam Sandler for that. I mean, he, he may have said sexist things in his time, but this is the definitely a casting agent, you know, standard issue behavior. I mean, no, it, it's I so want, every day. I mean, at the same time, it's th- this kind of base humor does to some degree rely on certain assumptions about what people find funny. I mean, even though I, I pumped it up a little bit towards the end of last week's episode, I ended up not seeing Ted 2. <laughs> it's another one of those movies where it's so, there's so much taking for granted about what America likes to laugh about. I and know. I, f- I feel like, you know, you end up being the uncoolest person in the room when you bring these things up. You know, it's like, well, if it's funny, it's funny. But there's something about humor that, you know, all-inclusive satire can be great. You can offend people and still have something substantial to do with that offensive nature. It's one thing if you're aiming everything at, you know, basically uh, men, right? Um, And it's another thing if you're trying to reach a broader audience and, and, you know... Ted 2 is going to play very narrow. Um, but, you know, remember Seth MacFarlane went on, you know, the Oscars and bombed with with his attempts to, you know, his idea of what was funny. Um, so mainstream perhaps is not him either. Well, all the, all the bros who love Seth MacFarlane don't really tune into the Oscars, although they thought maybe with him they would, but everybody else was kind of more Some of them did. Some of them few, actually did. Um, but there's, I, I, I think we're, we're making slow progress um but it is encouraging to see more more women directors getting hired to direct movies this is this is what we want to have happen it's it's baby steps Uh, rebecca thomas was an interesting development this week a young filmmaker who made an indie movie that i saw at the berlin film festival a few years ago called electric children really delicate little story about a a girl who kind of escapes from a cult in, in in a way and she was hired to adapt another john green uh, adaptation um, and, uh, who wrote uh, Fault in Our Stars and that's a, a filmmaker who's got one movie under her belt and falls in line with that trend of studios hiring younger filmmakers to do studio projects right but, but uh, you know the, the idea that they should be mad anybody should be mad that Marvel hired a white guy independent you were mad you were complaining about this guy you know John Matt sure. you know being but if hired. it's gonna happen but why not if they yeah. see that he has the skills that he needs you know for, well, for a big budget you know comic book movie well, you know they're the ones who are running the show he he's doing what they tell him to do if it's going to happen, I, I think maybe it is, does make sense to go look for some, some young women directors and use that kind of ability in, in a progressive way, though. I saw Cop Card literally about two days before that. How was it? It was fresh in my mind, which was why I had a very extreme reaction to this news. It's, it's great. I had a lot of fun with it. And uh, it really reminded me in very explicit ways of Spielberg's first movie, Duel, in that it's this very stripped-down kind of action thriller. You don't get a lot of context about the characters. It's just some kids stole a cop car, and the crazy, corrupt sheriff is chasing after them in the middle of nowhere. So that kind of ingenuity, you know, it's cinematic without being sort of overwrought in any particular way, 
is really exciting. And so when it you see somebody like that for this, it sounds well, like just what they would want. And remember, they like being that. funny. They like having a certain tone to all their films that is consistent throughout well, the Marvel universe. And if they again, think he can capture that tone, why not hire him? Exactly. I am not arguing with the business sense of the studios. I, I am coming at this exclusively from the aesthetic perspective of is this the best way for this skill to be applied because to me it's there's more no like- place for these people to go that's the whole reason why i get pissed off about this too there is no trajectory for but them to rise not, in I, I it's like know. you go from zero to a hundred because there is no middle there is no so. other he, he's well, not gonna go do like award movies in period for 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 searchlight you know he's he's not gonna he's not there are no he's he would have to go to tv that guy He'd well, have to go direct TV. There's not, that's not necessarily a bad thing if TV supplants the kind of mid-level indie film. Which well, is what's happened. Maybe you, maybe you settle in there for a little bit. and then Look at you all the deals the Duplasses are making. Sure. Well, those guys are in their own space. They may be more <laughs> of an anomaly. But I think that there, maybe that is what's happening. And maybe that would be a better option for certain people. I totally get it. It pays a lot of money. Maybe it'll be a fun movie. I have no idea good move for the studio i'm more inclined to believe that with kevin feige on board hiring someone like this that the studio never would have hired actually in this case because there's nothing proven the studios are all about denying that 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 they had that they put too much risk on anything you know they could say well it was 500 days of summer that was a big breakout mark webb is the hottest thing since like bread this guy's movie hasn't even opened yet right you know right in, in, in some ways, that almost seems like a bigger risk. But who knows? I'm also really curious to it see... It is a bigger risk. I'm saying that Marvel's willing to take it. They're willing to have the confidence that they see what they need in his films. That, right. Yeah. The studios okay. wouldn't do that unless he was already proven in some way. Yeah. No, it, it's fascinating to see it. I guess, again, the, there are two different conversations. One mandates that you see cop cars, so we'll, we'll probably have to revisit this in a couple of it's weeks. It's going to be interesting to see if they actually do put it out with Focus World yeah. or whether they change their tune, because everybody's going to want to see it now. Exactly. Well, and they should. Some, there's some kind of advocacy happening there. Another uh, Netflix item worth discussing this week uh, just going back to that track is uh, a movie that's opening that's being released by that company. What happened, Miss Simone, which was the opening night documentary at the Sundance Film Festival this year. It's a, a movie about Nina Simone, directed by Liz Garbus. I think it's very strong, loved uh, it. Very dark and and kind of unsettling portrait of how this woman's life fell apart. In some ways, very similar to another music documentary that's opening later this summer, Amy, about Amy Winehouse which is also very much reliant on a whole bunch of archival stuff, much of which I think a lot of people who know the name and the music haven't seen before. And even the, the Kurt Cobain doc, Montage of Heck, from Brett Morgan, they're very, they all kind of fall into this similar... You could even genre. put the Alex Gibney uh, Sinatra doc on HBO. Shared on TV, right. Um, because what they're doing is is if they... And you could even compare it... And these, this is not a music doc, but the, but the approach is the same when you have Listen to Me, Marlon. The idea that if you have the archives and you have permission and you have access and the family's helping you, you can find amazing stuff. Of all of those, actually, um, in a way, the Miss Simone is is 
more traditional you know she's doing interviews with people uh you know there's but there's a story that hadn't been told before and she found material uh that no one else had found especially uh, an interview with simone uh, an audio interview and that's what alex did too gibney he took an interview with, with sinatra that was he did a lot of audio interviews and that's what Capadia does too so that there's a narration and of course the brando one is narrated by brando because he was doing all these uh, taped, uh, you know, talking to himself kinds of things, you know, that he that they could use to, to tell the story in a different way than you would ordinarily get. So you get closer. You just get closer to the subject when you can get that material. Which is smart, especially when you're dealing with people in all of these cases who are no longer alive. And the mythology of their work overshadows a lot of who they were personally. I really like that aspect of Montage of Heck, where it was not trying to regurgitate a lot of stuff you already knew about this person. Nina Simone does that in certain ways. It leaves a lot of questions on the table, uh, particularly about her mental state in those later stages no of her question. life. No question. She was definitely mentally disturbed, but I would suggest so was Kurt Cobain. Oh, oh. my God. No I did. I learned more about him than I wanted to know, but what was wonderful about what uh, Brett Morgan did was to go into those notebooks and take all the notes and the and the drawings and animate them and, and just turn it into a picture of his mind that was rather vivid. Yeah, and, and Amy does that as well, though. Amy, I would say, is actually much closer to, to what happened Miss Simone because they're both really about how this industry, the music industry, and the particular times when these two people were sort of becoming popular, it was much more, it was much easier, I think, during Nina Simone's time to um, take for granted who she was as a performer and not look out for sort of her own kind of creative integrity and her health as a, as a human being. And so in some ways you see echoes of that in, in Amy, even though it seems like it should have been a safer time. And so together the two of them really speak to sort of the, the continuing sort of setbacks of the performing industry. Uh, but in Nina Simone in particular, I think it's a really uh, fascinating look into the way that her home life had an impact on her performances. And there's this amazing performance that kind of bookends the movie that's from later in life where you see the full weight of what's going on off screen uh, without any context at the beginning. And then you get more of that context later on. It was on. wonderful. It was, it was extraordinary. The, the and that, she that really that. makes the movie. For all the, 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 the kind of minor issues I have about sort of missing details or whatever, it's not, it's not as satisfying for somebody who wants the kind of comprehensive me and Simone take it really does give you the kind of emotional clarity of what this person went through. But it's also a question of putting someone in the context of their time, and and we may all be familiar with her music, but we didn't know uh, as much about what it took, what you know, to be a woman of color at that time to break through the way she did and what she did to have to survive, um, and and also her relationship to the civil rights movement. So I didn't know a lot of that stuff. So I, I think we all know a little more. Or perhaps about about Kurt Cobain or or even Amy Winehouse, unfortunately. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. And and I think the the civil rights thing is actually very interesting. I didn't know that either. And the way that she was sort of pushed to the side or, or considered sort of less serious in some ways because she decided to be socially active 
is something worth singling out in a, in a major way because... Well, her that's... anger became transparent, which is right. part of... To circle back to some of the conversations we were having today, women aren't allowed to get away with that sometimes, you know? Right, right. So one more Netflix item since we've been going through the list. They've been in the news a lot lately. There's a new show that I know you've been watching that uh, premiered on Netflix uh, from the um, Wachowskis. Um, so did you watch it? And it's called Sense8. I watched the first episode. That's all I've seen. I'm trying to figure out what I've experienced so far. So. <laughs> I thought it was really fascinating. I, I was comparing um, tr- the opener of True Detective with the opener of Sense8 because you had to uh, basically launch a series on this one episode and say, I mean, people may have seen the last series of True Detective, but this is a totally different cast and a different director and, and everything, the same writer. And, and and a different story, a different setting, and, and everything. So it's really like a you know. Uh, so basically, you, you know, did did they grab you? You know, and and in the case of Sense Eight, which was way more elaborate and way more uh, sort of out there and trippy, I was sort of impressed with how they took you on this ride to all these different exotic locations and these disparate characters and you know united by this one woman uh played by daryl hannah who's somehow communicating with them across uh you know the barriers of space and time and and i was i was very taken with it i want to see more well it's intriguing to say the least much in the way that i remember the first act of the matrix had certain unknown variables that draw you in I guess the the big question, and probably some of our listeners are many steps ahead of us because I've talked to people who watched the whole thing already, but it's uh, can it sustain that sense of mystery and anticipation across an entire season without providing enough answers to keep you invested in it? I mean, this it's is a little bit like the X Files or something like that. It's the same. Well, idea. but with the X Files, there was always a mystery. You were always on the edge of knowing something that you didn't know. I mean, the know. host of our our very good TV podcast, Liz Miller, could weigh in on the whole X Files thing because I think she's seen all of them many, many times over. But with that, with that, that show really was each episode usually was its own self-contained thing. Even if there were some larger mythological things happening, I mean, in general, you could watch one from start to finish and have this complete arc. Whereas something like this is sort of ongoing, and there are certain unknown variables, and so you're drawn in to get more answers. And I remember I was a big fan of Lost. When I was I just going to say this isn't dissimilar from Lost. Yeah. And and the thing about or that's... even the leftovers, which I rejected. You see, I reje- yeah. I I watched the first episode of the leftovers and I bailed. I was out of there. <laughs> I just wasn't going to go any further with that. I mean, and it's the same same uh, one of the same writers. So I mean, there's certainly Lindelof yeah. connectivity to to this approach that I remember with Lost committing to mainly because I was, I was so intrigued. It really set my imagination going, and it was done in a way that was incredibly well directed in certain moments. Each new revelation was exciting if you allowed yourself to be susceptible to that approach. And you were hanging on to the characters, which is what we're talking about here. We're hanging on to the characters in Sensei and in True Detective, you know, who are somehow magically brought together at the end of the episode. And I, too, want to check out that one and see what goes on from there in a very tentative, let's see one more kind of way. Of course, yeah. I mean, the thing is, it goes back to what we were saying about TV being this middle ground for filmmakers. With the Wachowskis having bombed so hard their last movie, 
with uh, with uh, I can't even remember what it's called now because there I are two of them. There's there was the <laughs> Jupiter rising, Jupiter ascending. ascending, and then there was the the one before that, which was the Cloud Atlas. The Cloud Atlas at least had some more interesting things going on. I mean, I I, w- I would forgive that as sort of a, a something that didn't quite work if there was if they had followed it up with something stronger. But it really did feel like after that there was just no way they could do something on that scale. And this Netflix show does feel smaller. And maybe that's a good thing for these guys. Although uh, it has yeah. it has some scope to it, uh, visual visual scope. And in this case, they're supervising the whole thing and they're involved. You know, whereas on True Detective, you know, you're going to have different directors coming in and out. Um, and it's the it's the old paradigm returning. So that Fukunaga was in charge of the first series, but now it'll be the usual standard TV paradigm. So I know you want to talk about True Detective. Well, we should no, just, no, that's uh, all I have to say. I'm fine. Uh, that that was that was. Yeah, I'm 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 good. I'm, unless well, you have did, did you did you did you watch it? I watched the first episode, and um, it's not great. In my <laughs> opinion. <laughs> There's some stuff there. It's not it's not unwatchable throughout. But what I found in, most um, sort of surprising about it was that it almost played like a B movie or something. It's like this pulpy sure, version absolutely. of what the last, but the last episode elevated that conceit to higher art in certain ways. It was more a tone poem than anything else. And some people were let down because they thought it was going to become something with a greater, more traditional form of payoff. And that's just not the kind of movie that essentially Kerry Fukunaga had in mind when he was envisioning this as just this one self-contained work. And this one, I mean, there's a scene with uh, Colin Farrell talking to this this chubby redheaded child who's the daughter of the his wife who was raped, which is this kind of shocking conceit, but at the same time seems so out of whack with the kind of character he is. I just did not buy the interactions between them. His attempts to be a loving father while also going and beating the crap out of uh, the father of remember he's an alcoholic him. he's drinking so sure. when he's drinking he's not one. acting he's not <laughs> acting entirely rationally now, this guy's fucked up what 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 struck me about about that is that there what what i loved about the ending of the you know they've introduced you to all these really messed up people they are so unhappy and so not in good shape and they're all drinking and doing you know some of them are doing drugs or whatever and they end up you know one of them is like driving the you know taylor kitsch is riding a motorcycle into the night and, and it's almost ludicrous how incredibly insanely f- messed up they are and then they all show up in various stages of disarray at this crime scene and and now we're on now we're in business i like that i thought the ending was great because it really did set up what the show could be and and taylor kitsch and rachel mcadams really are the stars that come across in more appealing ways Colin Farrell, I just, I just found him to be too over the top. And well, and we need to find out. We need to find out if he's going for comedy. Is and again, know, the, what's the, the relationship with Vince Vaughn? I well, <laughs> he's like something out of a Todd Solondz movie. No, but it's I believe Colin Farrell that he th- that he believes and he cares about uh, him as his son. I believe I that. Uh, even even worse, though, I, I have to tell you, is Vince Vaughn because he's so Vince Vaughn-y. He's just not doing anything. He's better than he's been in a long time. But, I mean, I like him as a presence. It's fun to see him around. It's sort of, oh, now Vince Vaughn is a corrupt casino owner or whatever. But, I mean, it's just he has one mode. I just don't – I don't – 
see him. Actually, Kelly Riley is in there with him, so that might make it more interesting. Yeah, there, there's, she's like there's the, the Lavinia, you know, she's the powerful woman behind, you know, there's the, the Sopranos element there. You know, we'll but see. We'll see. If it, if it ends up being sort of a trashy entertainment, I, I can roll with it. It's just I wasn't really prepared for that kind of experience. But I am enjoying hearing all these different kinds of reactions. And I like it when any kind of culture divides people because consensus is boring. So if this is more of a divisive kind of season for True Detective, then maybe it'll be more fun to talk. Here's, here's what I'll grant you. They got me for one more episode, but they are on thin ice, you know, <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see. So we have all these new shows. There's so much new stuff to talk about on TV, and it's obviously not a revelatory comment to say, well, TV is supplanting movies on the conversation spectrum or whatever. I mean, I, I've never fully Well, especially in the summer, you know. I mean, look, there's so many great movies to talk about. So from the perspective of being a cineast, a cinephile, however you want to sort of categorize, plenty of things worth talking about if you see enough movies. But box office tells a different story so we got okay, Jurassic so, World doing really well but the indie stuff not so much but really well is not the term I would use <laughs> I mean, this is like up there with what the biggest blockbusters oh, of all that, time I mean it gobbled yeah. up it just gobbled up the box you know it's, Pixar's it's, new movie did well too it did so. very well but it was eclipsed in the second weekend but you know it did 90 something the other one did 100 something I mean it is insane on a global scale, how big Jurassic World actually is. And unfortunately, the poor little indies who thought they could do counter-programming against it didn't know. They didn't see how big these two movies were going to be. They got the adult audience also. So these movies have gotten killed. Now, I think Me and Earl and the Dying Girl is a case of a tweener. A tweener is a movie that is neither fish nor fowl. It is neither art house nor populist it's it's somehow uncommercial because it's too commercial for one sensibility and not commercial enough for another it's it's an it's, it's a weird thing that happens every now and then i think searchlight may have miscalculated on that one because it won you know it was it, it went on to win the jury prize and the you know the audience prize and it obviously played well but something about it isn't isn't happening yeah, I can do with that that one anyway. I mean, it was it was fine. I enjoyed it in parts, but uh, the the other movie that opened that weekend, The Wolf Pack, which we should probably revisit at some point, that's a conversation starter to that movie, and it did really well in New York. But once in L.A., once it got there, nobody really paid attention, and it's a little too bad because it's it really is a movie that has so many questions about how to raise your family, how movies impact our lives. It should be sort of something that galvanizes folks who are excited to talk about new movies that are out there. And it I hate to out. say it, it sounds like something that should have been on Netflix. Well, <laughs> I'm sure they would appreciate that. But again, I don't know. They're making Wachowski series and Adam Sandler movies. They're still so. picking. They pay, by the way, they paid for the Liz Garbus movie, which is the first time they've done that. So right. that was a big deal. Before it premiered, even. Yeah, it, before it, they, they got it, they paid to make it. You right, know, which is right. not the same thing as picking something up at a, at a. So when it went to Sundance, it was already um, a Netflix movie. But this is an interesting point, which is that those kinds of platforms are simply the way in which a lot of people consume smaller, weirder things. That's and right. So 
it it makes sense for all distributors and, and everybody who works in the industry to really start thinking more and more in those terms. I mean, if you make a movie and your dream is to get it to play at a theater, you can realize that dream relatively easily. Does that mean that you need to deal with the logistics of a film industry that's not really well set up for the theatrical model anymore? Well, basically what's going on is that there are various um, demands that are placed on on these filmmakers that if they want the right kind of VOD, you know, release, it has to be inside this window. And if they want to be on iTunes, they have to have X amount of theatrical before it gets to go to iTunes. And there are, there are all sorts of things that are becoming codified now that make it more difficult for everyone to do the right thing for the right movie. It's an interesting situation out there. It's a little bit, it's not the wild, wild west. It's starting to become, everybody's looking out for their own interest. Right, which is, you know, might mean that a storm is brewing in some ways. I mean, it's uh, it'll be a very unique award season in that respect. I mean, we don't even know who all the players are, but there's it's certain to be pretty competitive in, in a lot of ways, I would assume. Well, there's there's some, you know, now that we have the fall, um, I mean, this could be another conversation, but now that we have the fall uh, schedule pretty, you know, lining up more and we can see which of the films are actually going to go to the festivals and we can sort of figure out what the players are, are going to be. Um, it doesn't look super strong, though, I have to say. I mean, you know, how is the walk going to be any good? Is... Is the Danish girl going to be any good? Is Trumbo going to be any good? Is Suffragette, the feminist movie, going to be any good? Well, last year we already knew about Boyhood and Grand Budapest Hotel, and they had lasting power. So maybe it's something that's already with us. Who knows? Maybe we're already in the thick of award season. It almost (laughs) sounds creepy, but it could be a good thing. Maybe Love and Mercy is going to get a huge boost because it's kind of a weak year. Diary of a Teenage Girl. (laughs) Oh, God, I love that movie. That would be a great one. And from your pals at Sony Pictures Classics, too. And then there's Carol, yeah. you know, Carol, which Carol, did well yeah. at uh, Sundance. I Absolutely. mean, it can, it can. We'll so, see. We got All enough right. week to talk this through. Let's do that then. Okay. Later on. Hey, everybody, it's Eric again. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. And I just wanted to remind you, you can go to vimeo.com slash IndieWire right now, and you can get... World of Tomorrow, Don Hertzfeld's amazing short film with a 10% discount on Vimeo On Demand using the promo code ERIC10, E-R-I-C-10. That's my name because I'm a big fan of this movie. I really love it, and I really want you to see it and tell me what you think about it. So go to Vimeo On Demand, check it out, use that promo code, and we'll see you next week. If you're really a true friend, that's all I need. That's all I need Just one step Above the ghetto Just enough to get by I'll pay you back By and by I'm Victoria Cash Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today. 
at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.